Hello and welcome to Leaving Egypt. I'm Jenny Sinclair. And I'm Al Roxburgh. This podcast is for you if you want to explore the unfolding vocation of the church in these times of unraveling. We'll be doing two things, reading the signs of the times and sharing grassroots stories. We'll be having some brilliant conversations with fascinating people and we'll discover how local expressions of God's people are contributing to the reweaving of hope in our common life. We do hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaving Egypt. So our guest today is Lord Glassman, Maurice Glassman, calling in from London in the UK. Maurice is the founder of Blue Labour, director of the Common Good Foundation, and professor of politics at St. Mary's University in London. Maurice, welcome. Hi. So the first thing we want to do is give our listeners a flavor of who you are. So what's your journey been through life? Give give us a story and an overview of that. Well, I'm Jewish. I'm from the heartlands of North London. Um, That's the first thing. I'm brought up in an Orthodox family, very strong uh, supporters of Tottenham Hotspur and the Labour Party. Those two went together. Um, they go together. <laughs> uh, with, their, with the United Synagogue, which is uh, the main Orthodox synagogue in, you know, in, in London. Um, brought up with those three, um, those three things. And then I, you know, began to, I moved, I became definitely a socialist and, and was in, but obviously reflecting on the problems with socialism, not just the tyranny and, and just general awfulness of what happened in the Soviet Union, but also the disintegration of sort of social democracy in Britain, um, the loss of its political economy, and I was on. I was just searching for meaning, searching for for something that made sense. And I went to Italy to do my PhD, and there I discovered this Catholic social thought, which was an amazement to me, because it had a really profound critique of capitalism without reverting to statism. Um, and that sort of nourished my politics hugely. Um, and then I discovered when I got back to London from Italy, community organizing Alinsky. So Karl Polanyi was a very big figure for me, Catholic social thought, the labor tradition, uh, bringing these all together. I thought that well, what you've seen after the war, after the second world war in, in, in Europe, generally you saw Christian democracy and social democracy. Those two were, you know, gave Europe its most peaceful, prosperous, democratic period in its history. And yet they disintegrated, and yet they fell away, um, saw the emergence of a very aggressive um, market fundamentalism, you might call it, or, or whether where commod- what I call commodification, where every aspect of human life became something that was available on the, on the market. And and over time, I could see that the labor tradition itself was disintegrating. It was coming sort of exclusively statist, accepted the globalization thesis that the market was the most efficient way of allocating resources, that, that you know, that combination of technology, 
um, and corporations meant that national politics was irrelevant, um, all of these things. And, and then came the crash of 2008 and the sort of disintegration of all that. And I still think we're living through the echoes of that um, disintegration. So I kind of developed this thing called Blue Labour and was astonished at how many different people related to it. Um, so, so something that drew upon conservatism and tradition in terms of family, um, in terms of that the nation state was still the most effective way of resisting capitalism as well as imposing it, um, really drew on Catholic social thought hugely in, in its formation. So as opposed to straightforward state nationalization, ideas of decentralized institutions, local accountability, regional banks, vocation, the whole concept of vocation and vocational training. Um, you know, I worked very closely for a long period with a community organization in London, initially called the East London Communities Organization, then London Citizens, then Citizens UK. That was uh, part of the story. And um, very strangely, I ended up in the House of Lords. You know, um, that's just how my life went. And since then, trying to build coalitions uh, around these ideas on the basis that there still is no real alternative to globalized progressive capitalism on the agenda, that the right had their moments. Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, but they can't resist capital. They still are completely um, in full, really, to, to capitalism and, and globalization. So that's a rough summary of, of, of where I am. Can I take you back to the blue in Blue Labour? Yeah. The, the sadness, it's, yeah. it's about sadness and loss, isn't it? There's something that happened when your mum was dying. Yeah, yeah. There was the my mum was was you know a working class conservative Labour voter. You know that's that's what she was. She was very religious, but also very concerned about you know issues relating to fairness and justice and those issues. And she got this terrible illness called progressive supranuclear palsy, which meant that she lost control of her body. She couldn't speak, but her soul and her mind were still there. It was a terrible period, but that cured me, you know, of any notion that progressive was a good thing. You know, I, it's the last thing you want to hear when you go to the doctor, you know, it's progressive. Um, so that was the loss, but it was also the loss of the forms of, of the labor movement, the loss of the way that everybody was morphing themselves to conform to um, a capitalist economy and the institutions, to use your phrase, our work, were unraveling before my eyes. And that all came together with the financial crash, where suddenly we bailed out the banks and pretended that everything could go on as normal. And in a way, we're still in that, what I call that interregnum, that in-between space where, you know, Gramsci said, the old is dead, but the new cannot be born. There's a fraternization of opposites and all manner of morbid symptoms pertain those. So, yes, this this idea that we've, you know, 
the most ridiculous statement that I ever heard in politics was the was the new Labour catchphrase in 1997, things can only get better. You know, nothing about that sentence is true. You know, a complete avoidance of tragedy, the fact that we have to live with tragedy, with death, with loss. And how do we mourn that? And how do we build a, a politics that recognises uh, human sadness and doesn't just say, oh, no, everything's going to be fine. We're living in the best of all possible worlds. A lot of people on this audience are going to be religious people in the sense of clergy and ministers and all of that. And the language you use, Morris, is, is disintegration. It's the words you are using. And you're talking about the disintegration of the political and the economic and implicit in that, I think, of societies. Yeah. Um, and as I think of the audience here, I think of them saying, yeah, yeah, we, we kind of get that. But the big deal is the disintegration of our churches and uh, of Christian life and Christian identity. And we're just working as hard as we can to try to fix our own disintegration. We know this stuff is going on, but here's what we got to fix. How, how, what do you say to them when, when so much of their energy is focused on how do we make this work again? But there's this deep sense inside that, they know it's not. It, that's the tragic side. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to link the, mm. the, the this macro picture that, that you're describing. Well, just to say to, to people that you're a huge part of the story, that you're a huge part of, of what is to come, which has to be related, I think, to the idea of the kingdom, of retaining a notion of, of the kingdom that, that the church is an indispensable aspect of the reintegration of society in different ways, but it has to be done within the framework of Christian thought and the Christian tradition. So let's just look at three things that, that, that are vital, which is that the church is, a, is, a local, is an embodied and embedded institution. It's placed in the local. It's there. It's there as a as a glimpse of the kingdom. It's there to to keep alive a notion of human relationships that aren't purely instrumental. Um, but the church desperately, you know, needs its neighbours. It's not a standalone institution. It has to build. So relationship is another aspect of that. So local that it's a local institution that needs to build relationships with the neighbours and the people around it, that there's a huge amount that the church you know, can learn from the poor, from engagement with the poor, from talking to, to, to poor people, and that the church actually is a source of power, that it can act. But it can only act if it remembers that its vocation is both local and relational. So... So what I say is there's very few resources to resist this disintegration, and one of them is certainly the Christian tradition uh, looked at uh, uh, as a whole. You know, I'm from I'm a, I'm Jewish, and I'm also a socialist. So these are two other forms of tradition. But as I said earlier, Catholic social thought was very distinctive because it had an analysis of capitalism, and there's something 
you know, nutty going on with the idea that the that the creation itself, you know, human beings and nature are just to be described as factor markets in a global economy, that there's no inherent sacredness to those things. And you know, Al, that's where I'm that's where I think I'll begin this this engagement mm-hmm. and conversation with you. It's very mm-hmm. appropriate that, you know, it's called leaving Egypt because in this world of of oligarchs, of you know, Bezos and Zuckerberg and all these people, you know, economic and political power are held by them. You know, this is very heroic and it seems to me essential that, that the church stresses the dignity of the human person, the sacredness of our natural inheritance, the importance of love and relationship. It shouldn't back off from these fundamental notions of human existence that it has protected for two millennia. You know, the church does not need to contort itself to non-management theory and markets. It, in fact, mm-hmm. its salvation is to is to resist those by building relationships with people around what is sacred. So maybe can we look a bit at the kind of oppositions of so the characteristics of this Egypt mm. and the characteristics of the kingdom? I'm just thinking, for example, the opposition of human versus digital, or, you know, money as relationship versus, you know, the frictionless administrative procedures that that big capitalism wants. Um, And sometimes how the church falls in inadvertently with these pharaohic forms, um, perhaps misunderstanding what's going on. I wonder if you can help us a bit understand in practical terms what what the characteristics of both are like? Of the characteristics of Egypt, of Egypt and of the kingdom, you're putting them next to each other, you know, in opposition. So, uh, the characteristics of of Egypt are centralisation of power. That's the first thing. That the political and the economic power are both institutionalised in the same. Uh, focus. You saw that, you know, in the Soviet Union, that the that the head of the party was also the dominant force in the economy, and that there was no resistance to that. You you see that in globalization, where any resistance um, to that is just viewed as populist or or, or or crazy. You know, this is an argument over sanity in the end about what is. What is saying, and the the kingdom articulates that it is possible to build human relationships based on mutual respect and dignity, but it goes further, and and says that that you can be a force in the world to resist these things, resist just the reduction of the human being to a commodity or an administrative unit, that you can actively live together. And different kinds of people. That's another unique thing um, with with the church and the Christian tradition is is that you can be of different races, you can be of different ethnicities, you can be of different classes, but you but you can share a common life and pursue a common good. Um, so these are the ways that I understand it. 
you know, that Pharaoh is an administrative system based on the centralization of power that undermines the human status of the person and really tries to undermine loving relationships over time, covenantal relationships that are based on, on solidarity. And against that, you've got an idea of the kingdom uh, where it is possible for people to live together in mutual respect, dignity, and love. That, that's essentially how I see it, Jimmy. And what about um, the meaning of politics? I think um, sometimes people have an understanding of that being, you know, party politics, uh, which tends to be very high level. And in some ways, I feel people have lost an understanding of of what it means at local level in terms of self organisation. Can you can you say a bit about yeah well, about that and 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 how and how the the forms of globalisation have sort of subordinated that kind of democratic instinct. Yeah, so what we've got in, 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 both, in both politics and in the economy is the abolition of any sense of place, of, of any sense of locality. So politics is something that goes on a thousand miles away in Westminster, in Washington, um, and, it, and it's to do with, with parties that you don't belong to and that you don't really understand what they are. But politics and its essential meaning is how do we live together under shared institutions of justice. And, and politics historically was always based on how do human beings in a particular place live together with shared institutions under conditions of, of, of justice and how, how can they be a, a power? How can they... You know, act together in ways that elevate the human and diminish the dehumanization. So, uh, at the moment, politics is 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 some kind of consumer celebrity soap opera. You know, is Trump going to win the presidency from prison? You know, is is, is that a scenario that we're going to? Um, to see, and if you really look at it, the differences between Keir Starmer's Labour and the Conservatives are very superficial, you know, differences. They're still working within how do we function within a global system, you know, and there's very little conception of how do people live together and negotiate the conditions of their self-government. That relates to you know, to, to a very different meaning of the kingdom. You're talking about the, again, going back, this disintegration at the political and social level, which raises the question amongst people, well, what do we do about that? But what you're pressing into, Morris, is the local, which is that that somehow, somewhere, on the ground, in the neighborhood, amongst people, this is the place where to use your language, the kingdom can break forth and break out in the local. And I'm not, I'm not trying to set up an opposition between that, but, but there's something about the local that's, that's critical to, to everything that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it, it's because, you know, this is a huge insight of, uh, of Christian theology. That, okay, so the way I understand it is that, that Jesus came into the world embodied, he was embodied and he was embedded. He was in a place uh, like all bodies are. 
you know, it's a fantasy of rational choice theory that we can move anywhere and be anywhere. And, you know, this is, this is a reality. Um, and that, and so therefore, you know, where you live, the place you are, that is your, that is, that is necessary and it's your fate and how you function there is really the, the biggest thing that confronts you. How do you live in place? How do you build relationships with the, with the people around you? Um, that, that's central. So, so there's a locational aspect, but there's also for me, a vocational aspect, you know, when you talk about the disintegration is that people think that they don't need other people, but there's a different reality out there. You do need the people around you. They're the people who are teaching your children. They're the people who are caring for your parents. They're the people who, who surround you. But we, we tend to think that in a globalized world, you don't need the people around you. But the rediscovery that you really do is, I think, fundamental to this imaginative breakthrough that I'm talking about. Um, and with the church's relationship in the local, um, some churches seem to be doubling down on, the, on tradition, on ritual. Mm-hmm. Others are going for campaigning, justice campaigning. Yeah. Both, it seems to me, um, potentially are distracted from what you've called the political economy. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you could uh, talk a bit about that from from a Judeo-Christian point of view, because I think uh, there's been a loss in the formation. I think a lot of Christians haven't had that formation. And so they get um, tempted into these these different left and right f- forms of what they think justice is about. Yeah, well, this is this is all about uh, what I call the colonization of the church by secular ideological um, forces. So the church is mirroring the polarization in society as a whole, um, a split between a conservatism that doesn't question the market and a progressivism that doesn't question the state. That's a rough way of of summarizing it. You could go more deeply into it, but that that works for me as a rough heuristic. And and so within that, the you know the biblical. So you know, so if the left could capture the state, you know, there's this idea that justice can be achieved through 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 the state, or if the right uh, capture the state, then then all these um, strange progressive ideas can be, but but this is this is just completely empty. Um, deep deep in the tradition is the idea that God created the world, and that the world is something sacred. That world could be summarised in, you know, two words: human beings and nature. Those are sacred things that need to be protected that need to be upheld um, against both market forces and state forces through human relationships that value other human beings and build a meaningful relationship with the environment that they, they live in. So it turns out that the Bible is an extremely rich source of political economy, what they call political economy, because it doesn't hold to the idea that the market created the world or that the distributions of the, of the market are just. It was living with this in, 
in ancient Israel, and it had ideas of a debt relief every seven years. Uh, for example, it had the idea that interest wasn't really the best way to organize the banking system, relational forms of debt relief. All of these can be investigated and renewed in our days um, as, as, a, as a fundamental way of preserving a, you know, a Christian life. Yeah, just going, going back to the, the leaving Egypt um, and the yeah. power of Pharaoh, you're, you're talking about the power of Pharaoh in our language, whether of the right or the left, the progressive or the conservative, but deeply buried in these biblical stories is that, that fundamentally the Pharaohs of this world do not prevail um, and that God is doing something amongst ordinary people um, but but that something that God is doing involves commitment to practices like covenant, like what we do with our money and with one another. And, and it seems to me, uh, in, in in this larger picture of unraveling, that that the colonization of the churches is that on Sunday we believe in that God, but for the rest of the week. Where either the left or the right, and and what's been evacuated is any sense of the reality of God's presence in the midst of the everyday, in the political, in the social. Uh, yeah. I don't know whether that makes sense, Morris. It makes it makes a a great deal of sense. So I'm going to respond in two ways. Um, the first is 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 that there isn't really an articulation of this. Christian political economy. That would be an alternative to the progressive and the conservative, the the, the left and the right, um, which is, of course, embedded in the disintegration of the shared common civic institutions that used to nourish that. That were, you know, you could say that the state is based on the principle of redistribution. Money goes into the center, and then it comes out again. Um, and you could say that the market is based on the principle of contract, the exchange of e equalities between hands, you know, things of equal value between hands. But the basis of society was always reciprocity that was upheld by sports institutions, by Christian institutions, by all manner of civic institutions that would maintain uh, a relationship between real human beings in place. But because the state and the market have become so dominant, those civic institutions which take, like the church, which take a huge amount of effort to build and sustain over time, have essentially, you know, to use that word again, disintegrated. Yeah. You know, so so it, it's, it's the renewal of that that is really vital within a framework of, of mutual responsibility, of of relationships through time. These are the essential aspects, Jenny, of what I was referring to with the kingdom. Um, so what we have is, is, is that we have a general unhappiness and disaffection that is everywhere. Um, and we understand that through increased emphasis on mental illness and depression, but it, it tends to try, they try to individualize it or collectivize it, 
but really it's a it's a crisis of human relationships that exist in places and we need to concentrate on the healing of that and the refocusing on that hour as central within a framework that views human beings and our natural environment as a sacred inheritance that we need to preserve so it's not just about building relationships but it's also about a transcendent truth mm-hmm. yeah. um, which is that the human beings and, and nature are, are sacred things and the challenge for the church is to understand that people still carry this notion of the sacred although they might not be able to articulate it and to embed themselves uh, in in a network of sustaining relationships that can uh, allow the church once more to to flourish and give give a glimpse of what can be i was going to say when you say within the framework of the transcendent truth that that sounds to me like a particular anthropology about the human person which takes us back to what what you were talking about earlier about the sort of underlying philosophy behind globalization and and the big sort of neoliberal project which sees human being as as an isolated atomized individual not as a relational being yeah and so you're you're saying this concentration on relationships you're 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 saying which is what we say um that church is best to focus on building local relationships um whereas a lot of a lot of people will say well you know why can't we have a campaign you know for justice and you say well relationships come before justice and people find that hard to understand uh you know because people want to get on with doing something and they think that building relationships is somehow soft it doesn't feel like a real project yeah whereas you're saying um it's the fundamental project but you're saying clearly that it's within this framework of of a particular understanding the the imago day that that's absolutely critical and that's very 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 different from now the dominant narrative in the west that sees the human being in a different way yeah and to which i respond in as i see that i'm doing in this conversation in two ways the first thing i'm saying is that that is the christian inheritance that needs to be renewed mm. And the second thing I'm saying is those relationships can be built with people who don't necessarily share that metaphysics, um, but do carry a sense of grievance, a sense of injustice, and a sense, let's use the word, of a general desecration. You know, so Marx said, you know, in the in the communist manifesto he said that all that is solid melts into air everything sacred is profaned you know this is the nature of this unraveling or 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 disintegration so um it it's to to begin quite explicitly with the idea that there is something sacred about our life that needs to be preserved and not reduced to the cash nexus or to metrics of administrative justice and procedural fairness that that what human beings require is meaning and meaning is related to love and then that goes Jenny you know to go further is that if you are just campaigning then usually you're campaigning for someone else to save you you're looking to an external savior you're looking for some external 
fix, but you know, these things have to go on inside. You know, how how do we deal with it? And that will lead to okay, how, if there's a problem with the banking system, how do we create local banking? How do we create credit unions? We create uh, means of mutual care, and then when you reach the limits of that, that's when you start getting involved in a broader politics. But it seems to me as if as if campaigning reduces to single issues around external interventions rather than transforming the relationships that exist in the place and the renewal of ancient institutions and the creation of new ones that, that can begin to deal with these issues of loneliness, poverty, um, bad pay, mental illness. All of these find their, find their resolution um, with loving relation, faithful, loving relationships sustained over time through mutual institutions. So that's that's where the church has got its magic. I think what what gives me energy and excites me, and what I'm hearing from you, is that that most church people and church leaders that I know they they sense this disintegration, and they feel that the the only options they've got is to choose between the rights or the left, uh, this political party or that one to join. Um, but you're saying something else. You're, you're saying, I think, because I don't want to put words in your mouth, is is that there is, let's say, a biblical Jewish, Jewish-Christian understanding of political economy that's rooted in God and God's covenant, which, and I don't know whether you're saying this or not, which as Christians, we've forgotten and, and, and that the, the, the in the midst of this unraveling, the, the 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 biggest thing that we can do in the local as leaders is ask, how do we recover that political economy rather than having to choose between left and right? Yeah, and how do we discover, which is the nature of that biblical economy, a shared set of institutions and relationships? that protect the dignity of the human being from, you know, state and market, Yeah, that can elevate the notion of vocation. We're sort of aware of it, and then we lose it. We say, mm-hmm. oh, well, we live in this globalized world, and we're dependent on China and India to produce. You know, these are not the people who are looking after your mum. These are not the people who are shacking, stacking the shelves of the soup. They're... They're the people who live where you live. These are your, these are your neighbours. And how do we elevate what's low-paid, contracted-out work? Let's look at social care uh, as an example. You know, these are the people that are looking after your mum and dad in their vulnerable old age. How, why do we relegate? Why do we relegate them to a peripheral? You know, this is where the new forms of community are not going to be exclusive racial community. They're going to involve immigrants. They're going to involve people discovering a new sense of covenant one with the other. Um, And how do we do that wisely so that there's forms of self-regulation? You know, this is the whole concept of vocation. So, yeah, yeah, Al, there's been a massive forgetting of these things the yeah. local, <laughs> the importance of the local, of vocation, of how do we dignify labor and how do we 
how do we preserve each other's humanity under dehumanizing conditions? I mean, that seems to me to be the most fundamental things about the church in the world as an embodied, embedded yeah. institution. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there's, there's big reasons for it that people got completely involved with, you know, that the state is the answer because, the, you know, we've got to go step by step. The local reaches its limit, and then you need to build relations with other communities, and and that that's the beginning of some form of that was how the labour movement started. That's how Christian democracy started. But they've also forgotten the historical process through which you don't delegate the work to the state, or you don't delegate it to the market. You begin by caring for each other in the places and asking, well, what about money? You know, and and this is this is fundamental. Money can be a way of building relationships, and how do we deal with debt by re- by building relationships with with other people to help you through, not just through the transfer of of money on interest. So, oh yeah, the that what I don't want to say though is that for the church, it finds its salvation through a political economy because it finds its salvation through living its creed. Right, you know, that's, yeah. that's really, and then in the world of the political, it finds a common good with others, others who historically, you know, throughout, throughout the 19th century and, and all the way through various aspects of the 20th century, the, the labor movement and the church found common cause in so many areas. Now, if you were going to concentrate purely on ideology or theology, they it would end up where we are now with a hugely polarized world. But it didn't end up like that when there was uh, enough institutional confidence to build mutual uh, relationships mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. But but something happened just as you said there. Um, they the Labour movement, the Labour Party in the UK, for example, and the church have both, over recent decades, fallen out of relationship with poor poor communities, um, become very estranged from them. And you've got this ironic uh, state now where both the church and the Labour Party are trying to reach out to poor communities and are often failing to connect. And within the churches, we often hear the language of, you know, the marginalised outreach difficulty engaging with poor communities and you know there are various theories about why why that's happened over time but I was also struck by what you said earlier about not delegating which really resonates with what Pope Francis talks about in his World Day of the Poor letters for example the last one he was saying no more proxies he's saying stop outsourcing you know, to the state. is said, this is personal. You know, a relationship with people who happen to be poor in your neighborhood, that's where building relationships is, is critical. And he's also saying that the church itself is impoverished when it's not in relationship with poor people. There's something oh, that those yeah. communities bring that is different from um, those perhaps who are more affluent. I was, I'd really like to hear what, what you're thinking about that. Uh, what is it about those communities which we might have called the left behind and so on, um, what have they actually retained that uh, mainstream society has lost that the church needs? 
Well, that morality is a matter of life and death. You know, that they still know the a fundamental truth. I mean, if you mm. go and engage with those communities, you see all the despicable aspects of Pharaoh present. There's gangs based on violence. There's drug dealing going on, which is completely based on money going up and violence going down. Um, how 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 quickly ethical and moral bonds can can disintegrate, and in all those communities, there's resistance to that, um, and that resistance historically, to, you know, it took two forms: it took a socialist form and a Christian form. You know, essentially, how to um, resist all of uh, resist all of those things, and you know, the, so so. The, the salvation, the redemption, the, the resurrection will come from from a, a relationship of humility to to the poor and the leadership of the poor, and, and building building institutions that can articulate what they want. But what we've got to accept is that's not going to be a thin progressive neutrality. Is not going to come from that. There's going to be very strong. Um, and that's what makes people queasy about about it is is that it's it's a very very my experience is it's a very it's impossible to capture with this progressive and conservative or left and right frame it's 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 going to be a a politics of mutual obligation you know so for example in Grimsby the you know they say the certain you know forgive my language, everybody, but, you know, in a lot, shit happens, they say, you know, and that's just the ebb and flow of ordinary life. But then there are things that are out of order, and it's around those out of order things that you build your organizing and you build your your institutions. And, and you know, it, it if you translate that out of order, it's kicking away the stick of the blind. It's humiliating the vulnerable, it's, the, it's very fundamental biblical, you know, conceptions that of all, pe- all things that the church should be alert to at the very least, um, but tend to be seen as dangerous or volatile or, you know, so another thing is, is not to be afraid, not to be afraid of the poor, you know, to reach out, to learn, to connect, and and to to understand that that that's where the real moral struggles occur over the meaning of life. So in this country at the moment, I understand that we've got over five million people on out of work benefits, and so sometimes people in the church are obviously very concerned about that, and they tend to want to campaign for more benefits, which seems to strengthen this uh, centralized state uh, solution to this problem, which I hear you saying is not the solution. And you're pointing towards forms of local association where people can self-organize and build their strength together. But um, I wondered if you could um, take us back to some of what John Paul II uh, wrote about um, in the Catholic Social Thought around the dangers of the centralized state and collectivism because um, often that is a it's a temptation for people now because they can't see a way out 
of how do you get those 5 million people back into work? You know, it's so difficult to do that. So this, the easy solution is universal basic income or some form of yeah. um, state benefit, which parks people on dependency. It's in our bones, isn't it, to assume if there's a problem, the state's the answer. Or if there's a problem, why isn't the state fulfilling it? So that's just deep in our bones. I, 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 I get it, Al. And, you know, in the story that I'm telling, the state does play a really big role, but it's how the state supports the local. So what you have with the five and a half billion people on out-of-work benefit, what you have with universal basic income is defeat. That, yeah, there we go, they are the unnecessary people that the global market has no use for. It's a form of abandonment. I mean, let's call it what it is, and it's a, and it perpetuates loneliness, disconnection, lack of relationship, desecration. Let's look at you know those those words as they are. But I would say that if you take the view that every human being is capable of love and meaning, that every human being is is important that every human being is capable of relationship then you have to assume that every human being is capable of giving and that's a demand you know so this isn't about getting people back to work jenny it's about getting people into relationship with other people on issues that genuinely engage and concern and that's that's where the 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 kingdom is formed, if you like, is in is precisely there. That these people who we pay off and abandon should be brought into relationship with others in some forms of activity. But it doesn't need to be, you know, working in a call center or or, or, or a degraded form of work. It, it it could be in all manner of caring for others of being engaged with others. So, Al, is that making sense to mm-hmm. you? Yeah, very much so, yeah. But you do talk about the centrality of the dignity of work, though. You say how, how important that is. Oh, yeah, but how... Okay, so labour, dignity of labour. So mm-hmm. let's just reduce that a second into two forms. There's labour as an external activity that is transformative of the world and takes the form of payment, but there's also as you are aware, Jenny, as a mum, that you have been in labour, that you have reproduced a human being, that you've been involved with the miracle of labour, of reproduction. And it's care for human beings. It's not just that they they come out um, they come out of you and then we say, oh, how could we find them work? There's a huge amount of work to do with that person in building love, responsibility, creativity, all the things that you want a human being to find in their lives. And, you know, this this is where it is. One of the things that's happened within the political economy is the commodification of care. You know, that everybody's involved in the first form of labor and we've entirely neglected the second form of labor. But a Christian perspective, I would take it, but understand that the work of producing a human being is a work of, of, of is, is the huge labour um, that, that doesn't just involve schools and, 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 
it, it, it involves people and a myriad of people engaging with that person throughout their life as a partner, as a partner in creation. Um, so, so the answer, that's why Jenny, for, forgive the, the digression, but it's not just about getting them into work. It's about getting people into relationship with others where there is a form of reciprocity and mutual obligation between them. Mm. Um, and, and then the state is there to underwrite um, the enormous amount of time that takes in, in order to fulfill those obligations under conditions of contemporary capitalism where everything is financialized and given... Time. So what does that look like if the state is underwriting um, local forms of association that are being formed? Is that what you're saying? No, I think that the associations that people have um, should be... Um, so, but when it comes to the people on disability benefit, right? That, I mean, for example, the, the church can say, okay, we're going to create a relationship with 20 people in the local community who are on disability benefit. Um, this is going to take this amount of time. <laughs> you know, we're going to visit them every day for two hours. We're going to bring them into relationship with others. Um, and that, that can be a source of, you know, that's a source of employment for those people that they have the time uh, mm -hmm. to do that. And, and that's a, 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 it's a way of bringing people into relationship with others in, in the locality. So I, th I think that it's very important that the local associations are fundamentally self-funding, but then there are, there, it's a local form of how to deal with abandonment and find the time to engage with people and then see what they can give. And I've got no problem with saying, okay, well, at the end of all of that, let's see what you come up with in terms of activity. You're, um, I think part of what you're saying is, is that <clears throat> in the neighborhood in which I live, which at one level looks affluent, but at many other levels isn't, there are, there are people on, for example, on disability and they're getting funds from the government. And so as people of, of a congregation, we can feel, well, they're being cared for. But you're saying that in, in so many ways, the, the current status of that is actually we pay them to abandon them and leave them over here. So what would it look like if people in a congregation began to say, how do we get to know some of these folk? Uh, not from the perspective of what do we do for them, but simply how do we enter into relationship with them? And it's inside yeah. that relationality that you begin to ask the question, what might we do here for and with one another? And mm. that then becomes the basis for maybe, maybe not, we say to the state, here's where we need some of your help. I, I think that's part of what I, I hear you uh, describing. The critical piece is the relational piece. <laughs> that's the critical piece. And that, yeah. and that relational piece has to, takes time. You know, you have to give it a lot of time before you get to aims and objectives and KPIs, you know. And, and it can begin, 
voluntarily. But what I'm saying is this is where we reach a limit, is the, is the members of the congregation who have work will find it very hard to sustain the time necessary to go and visit yeah. on yeah. a regular basis a disabled, isolated person who may not be disabled, <laughs> who may be perfectly capable of, of doing things with others. Uh, and that's where I think it's necessary to rethink just the transfer of the money to the individual and begin to think about freeing people up um, to find that time to go and visit others. Maurice, I'm just, I'm just thinking as well about um, not only ways that the state in, in some ways could support some of that, um, but also what would you say to, say, a, a wealthy Christian uh, philanthropist or investor who who likes the sound of this local focused building up of relationship, supporting new forms of association? What um how could you tie that kind of sense of calling that they may have to the vision you have and sort of within that relational frame of the way of understanding justice that's that you're um setting out, which comes really from the Hebrew Bible? You know how 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 can we begin to conceive of um, the you know the individual investor feeling called to want to support something like that? Well, you know, don't delegate. You know, that's the that's the first thing. Don't don't contract it out. If you feel that calling, then remember you're the mantra that got you. Where time is money. So. Mm give your money in order to create the time where you and others can begin to genuinely build those relationships that you do not have now. Relationships mm-hmm. with the frightening poor, the relationships with the local abandoned, the relationships with the people on the disability benefits. Go, go, be brave. But you go and bring others with you in going. But that's not going to work with giving people money for a project. You know, right. it involves it involves a common good, you know, that you and them are linked. And so yeah, there's a huge there's a huge place for that. For yeah. for for and 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 that and that is you know at the heart of this. So it's not just the the state. You you asked about the disability benefits. I'm saying well, we're putting all this money into basically abandoning people. Let's think of an alternative to that. And then to the philanthropists, you say you're, you're giving money to achieve these social objectives, but why don't you use that money in order to build these relationships which take time? They don't, they don't have a quick return on investment, do they? Well, it's very challenging, isn't it? Because it's taking it away from the spreadsheet to actually yeah. putting yourself physically in that place, in yeah. that relationship, it requires humility. Yeah, and and it involves trust, trusting people mm. that they go and they and, and mm. they meet the people. Look, you know, I've got many stories about this, but the most frightening one is a story about the Orthodox community in Stafford Hill. So. In the Jewish Orthodox community, in the place that I live, every day, as part of their school curriculum, uh, school children between the ages of 14 and 18, they go and visit the same old person every day. Right? They just go in and they 
and they invite them to the permissifers and they invite them to the weddings. You know, I've seen the, I've seen people who couldn't walk, walk. You know, I've seen people who said they couldn't leave their house, go to these celebrations and they take joy in, in the, in the life of others that they have been excluded from. And I went to the mayor of Hackney and I said, well, what about this? And he said, well, we can't do any of this because of concerns about sexual abuse and safeguarding. You know, the, this is the world, you know, this, this is a fraught world of it because what we're talking about are, are intimate relationships. So I'm, I'm saying that this is a, a fraught space, but there's no backing away from trying to build long-term stable relationships between people of different generations of different backgrounds um, that could begin to engage them and involve them in a life of non-lonely internet isolation, you know, of, of television and... So this is a long way from, from the liberal understanding of freedom, really, which is about the unencumbered self, where you not, not, don't have any obligation to anybody. Well, this is a very long way from that. But, but what we see in the benefits given to five and a half million people on disability benefit is that while it's an act of abandonment, it's, it's not an act of, of absolute leaving them alone, you know, just letting them die in poverty. So there is still some notion that we owe something there and that something needs to be done. So... Um, in in that case, we could begin to think about the real. And what about the? Um, I know there's there's some words in the Hebrew Bible um, in relation to economy, like for example, the Hebrew meaning of loan, for example, which yeah. you've told me about before. Yeah. I think it might be interesting just to hear a bit about that. You know, really, what is money? It, you know, fundamentally in the Old Testament, we it's really justice is about relationship isn't it? And that often yeah. gets lost. Well, there's this recognition in the, in the Bible um, that the outcomes of human intercourse are not necessarily just or sustaining, that they, that it can lead to the development of an economic elite, that it can lead to the domination of the rich or the poor. I mean, every one of the prophets, I mean, every, every, every one, but we'll single out um, Isaiah, we're single out Jeremiah, we're single out Amos, uh, we're single out Micah. They don't really talk that much about ritual. They talk almost exclusively about the desecration of human relationships and the domination of the of the rich and the poor. I mean, Isaiah says, I don't want your fasts, I don't want your prayers when you abandon the widow and the orphan and the, uh, and the stranger uh, as well. He's very firmly put in that um, put in that link. So the the it's kesef talve is 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 the Hebrew phrase for how you deal with with debt and the poor is you keep them company. The mo- the money is an accompaniment. You build a relationship and you try and build a life together with that person. The 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 richer person goes into a relationship with the poorer person. And it may work or it may not, you know, but you mm-hmm. keep them company and whatever the outcome, at the end of the seven years, the debt is annulled. So the person isn't forever in a, a relationship of debt peonage. Um, 
as as it used to be as it used to be known. So it's a fundamental local and relational form of debt relief, you know, and and that's one of the huge things that I take from the biblical political economy. There's also that every 49 years land reverts back to the original owners, that you can't keep hold of the land in freehold title, that, that, that God is the freeholder, if you like, that you are only trustees or custodians of your inheritance. Uh, you know, it, it turns out that these are these take place in a decentralized, almost tribal form. You know, the, the land reverts back. So th- these are these are hugely relevant concepts in modern political economy if we look at the the, the relationship of the one percent to the ninety-nine percent. You know, all of these things don't necessarily have to be dealt with uh, as a state transfer, but as uh, systems of relationship and redistribution that take place within a, a, a society that's itself conceptualized as decentralized. So, Morris, here's what's running around in my head. Um, Please. The, I'm sitting, I'm having a meal with about seven or eight people, um, very young adults and adults and um, bright people, and we're talking about, in particularly in North America here, you can't escape the, 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 the great pharaohs of the South. And we're talking about politics and the right and the left and the disintegration of life. And we're talking about economics and the sense that it's coming apart. And the consensus around the table became, we know this is true, but there's nothing we can do about it. It's so overwhelming. And if I could if I could recapitulate something of what you were saying, I think you'd say, no, there's huge amounts you can do about it. And here are some of the things. One, you need to be part of a community that gathers around the scriptures, that gathers around the Bible and digs into the question of, who and what is this covenant God saying to us about our life together? And then secondly, you can begin to ask who in our communities and neighborhoods are the ones who are fragile and peripheral and not how do we, quote, help them, but how do we begin to build relationship with them? And in the midst of those two things, it's not that alone, but in the midst of that, those two things, we stand a chance of recovering the, this other story about God's story for us as human beings. So that, that's just what yeah. was running through my head. I like. I really like what's running through your head. That that yeah. combination. Um, so the combination of the rediscovery of Scripture. You know that that this is a guide. This is yeah. a inspiration. And uh, the second is communion, you know, that to, to build a relationship with others um, and to be open to that relationship, not as a unilateral relationship, I know and I will help you, or I know and I will, but to get to know the life, to be able yeah. to interpret the other's life in terms of, of thick things, you know, the work of, you know, <laughs> demons and wickedness and fair, you yeah. know, there's yeah. all manner of things going on. 
uh, and that also pertains to you that you are also in the grip of 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 of, of demons yourself and and to then provide a, a mutual anchor together of how you build your your relationship with 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 other other people and you know and and it's the sacred nature of the mundane how do you pay your rent how do you build housing how do you then start to build an alternative banking system these will all come from these and what you can give and what they can give you know this is not here here's the you know people have got to pay their dues you know and and, and relearn that the kingdom of god is not free you know that they've got to give to that um yeah. so yeah that that combination now is it it is exactly it. It's a. It's the combination of of reconnection to 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 the Bible, and then a reconnection to the people around you, and to be open to the way that that the angels and the demons are working in the places where you live. Yeah. It's that being open um, that I think is so important because what I find. That's, that's so colonized leaders here is that when they <clears throat> when they bring people together they, they want to say let let's um let's have a workshop on how we might innovate stuff or that and it's always taking away from that grounded relationality in which you ask what's god doing here and how do we figure it out together and that to me is the excitement yeah well and what's god doing between us yeah. What's the, what's the yeah. nature of that? Yeah, and and to resacralize the aband the place, you know, the sense of that this is this is holy ground everywhere. Is, holy ground, yeah. Holy yeah. ground, yeah, yeah. So I love what you said there about betweenness, and it it really reminded me of um, what Ian McGilchrist talks about. He uses that word betweenness when he when he talks about right and left hemisphere and he says that the west has become far more dominated than it should be by left hemisphere thinking and the right hemisphere thinking is that which is about instinct and um the sacred and so on and there's that um concept of what happens between human beings when they're in a a life-giving relationship and there's something generative that comes from that i mean in christian terms we would say you know, a sense of the Holy Spirit being at work in that relationship. And that feels so fundamentally at odds with the kind of coming uh, technocratic and anti-human um, trends that we see coming down the track very fast at us, um, that this um, insistence that, that you have about building relationship in the local is, in, is absolutely um, fundamental in terms of what it means to be a human being. Yeah, uh, as a resistance against the the new pharaohs, this this new Egypt of the great technic the, the coalition between the technocratic state and big corporations. That you began the conversation by talking about the oligarchs. You know, this is where power lies now. And if we're not really careful, if we don't build these relationships um, and uphold the sacred in the local, then then it, it will it will become a story of domination. Yeah, that's it. And in this engagement with people where you are, 
that's where you'll discover gold. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly. It's that. It's that strange. It's because what you will see, um, and this is what I found in my life, is is that it's in the areas where people say, oh, the left behind or the or, or the where relationships matter absolutely. Where honor, love is the currency of life and how people look after their their parents and each other under really difficult circumstances. It, 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 it's, it's kind of a miraculous to behold the levels of sacrifice that people are prepared to to do in their lives but it, it's to it's to understand that and to and to view that's what i mean about learning is that you don't go in teaching everybody a lesson got things to learn i think it's a wonderful place to to leave our conversation thank you so much morris it's been amazing yeah thank you, morris it's a pleasure and bless you both thank you very much Thanks for listening to Leaving Egypt. We look forward to you joining us again on the next episode. In the meantime, you can find out more at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk And you can find me on alanroxborough.com And do check out Leaving Egypt on Substack too. This podcast is brought to you by Together for the Common Good and the Missional Network. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you've liked what you've heard, Please subscribe wherever you'd normally listen to your podcasts and we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. So that's it from us. I'm Al Roxborough. And I'm Jenny Sinclair. Thank you so much for listening. God bless and see you soon. Mm -hmm.